kind of cuts off there and you expect more don't you <laughs> what's going to happen to this guy called Jonah right so I apologize for the abrupt ending but it certainly is uh, a great image and uh, just an incredible uh, little mini uh, sh video short to help convey to us really the message of this whole book I just uh, stepped in this morning and was headed on my way headed up to the stage here and uh, someone said hey they said you know I've kind of been like Jonah in my life there's been a time or two in my life where God wanted me to do something and I decided not to do it anybody else can anybody else say can I get an amen yeah 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 okay we're not all alone here and uh, you're not alone this morning and that's really our stories and that's really the story of Jonah and uh, it's interesting because it is about a prodigal prophet and the relentless pursuit of God. Um, it's important that we understand that. The book of Jonah is interesting because there's 48 verses in this book, but 47 of them are about the story of Jonah and his failure. And there's only one of the 48 verses, four chapters, 48 verses, there's only one verse that speaks of his success. And that is when he gave that eight-word message of repentance, uh, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown, was his message to, to this nation. No illustrations, uh, no personal applications, uh, no fancy uh, introductions and conclusions it was just five Hebrew words eight English words in our English translations of of Jonah and in that verse repent in other words repent because judgment's coming and that was it um, that was his prophecy and the rest of those verses in those four chapters deal with a guy who ended up doing God's will but he resisted every step of the way. And what's crazy and ironic in this, and I've been just immersing myself in the material this week, and that is that um, it's like everybody in the story does God's will willingly except for his prophet, the prophet Jonah. Um, the, uh, the wind does the will of God. Uh, the, the pagan sailors do the will of God. The captain of the ship does the will of God. The plant does the will of God. Uh, the, the worm does the will of God. The people of Nineveh, or Nineveh, they do the will of God. Everybody does the will of God willingly except for Jonah the prophet. And he's setting his heels the whole time, resisting and refusing, and in fact, coming up with plan B's and alternative 
uh, turns in the road he's going to make because of his unwillingness to do what God wants him to do. So I think that there's a lot that we can connect with in this book. And so we're going to embark and kind of get the thing off the runway this, this day, this last day, the Sunday of the year, uh, which I think there's some good things for us to talk about, it being the last Sunday of the year and the beginning of a new year. Uh, but also, uh, this will kind of get us up and going, and you can read ahead. It'll take you about, some people, 10 or 15 minutes to read the book of Jonah. I read it last night, uh, right before I fell asleep, about eight minutes. Uh, if you just want to casually read through, not check in with the notes at the bottom of the bi- uh, Bible page, and you know, just kind of read through it, about eight minutes, eight or nine minutes. But it's a very powerful powerful story and it moves in a very unique way Um, so and I want to ask you a question you don't have to answer this and it kind of relates to just what I've already said this morning and and that is have you ever felt like that you let the Lord down have you ever felt like that you let the Lord down now there's been times in my life that I have felt that way and uh, not always now don't don't misunderstand I don't I know that that it's God's grace that we're saved, and I understand that, and that's great, and that's awesome, and we need that assurance. But there's been times in my life where I felt like that, I, that God had a job for me to do, and I let him down. Um, and I've kind of worked through that in my spiritual journey with him. I can remember as a young Christian feeling like I should have witnessed to somebody, and, uh, and a couple days later he committed suicide. And that experience has never left me. Uh, and so I think about that, these things of just like, ah, I hope I didn't miss uh, something important there. It kind of felt like I did. I think in my 20s, I probably moved around too much, and I should have stayed put longer where I was and let the Lord use that time in my life. And so maybe uh, in not sticking with some of those assignments in the past, maybe feeling like maybe I let the Lord down some in those situations. But to quite honestly, this morning, I have made decisions that I have regretted. I've tried to minimize those, but we all have. Uh, I guarantee you, Jonah made some decisions he regretted, and you're going to see how that plays out in this series. Uh, I've done things that set me back from being the best life that God wanted me to live and to be. I've missed opportunities. There's been moments when I should have said, uh, maybe been more vulnerable, maybe a few more I'm sorry's. A few more I love you's, a few more let me tell you why I see it this way, or this is my struggle. I, I, I saw a, uh, a holiday movie not long ago, and one of the, one of the uh, refraining lines in the movie was, do you need to be helped, heard, or hugged? Do you need to be helped, heard, or hugged? And maybe that's something for you to think about in this holiday season, in this year, a, a time of a transition. How many times in our life... When we have been with someone and they needed help and we just kind of ignored that. Or maybe they needed heard, just a listening ear. Someone just to kind of unpack some stuff in their life. Maybe that was the ministry um, that they needed and we just kind of went right by it. Or maybe they needed hugged, someone that needed affirmation. Uh, and so, so, so many times I think we look back on our lives and we can see these moments where God had set us up for something, maybe some, something in someone's life. He set them up for a message. He set up, us up to deliver the message. And how many times we have just kind of gone the other direction and not accomplished that. And what's so intriguing about this, this uh, story of Jonah 
is that, and Dr. Hannah, a Dallas Theological Seminary professor, has pointed this out in his study notes on this book and the passage that we're dealing with today. And that is that just prior to um, Jonah's arrival in Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria, which is a pagan nation, brutal in a lot of ways, and we'll get into this. But uh, Dr. Hannah said that as we do the chronology study of this, when Jonah lived and Jeroboam II was the guy he served under in, in the northern kingdom of Israel, we can kind of do the math and we can, we can plot it out. A few years before Jonah's arrival in Nineveh, there were two major plagues that swept through the city. And that's a big deal when you're a pagan, worshiping pagan deities, thinking that the gods work through these kinds of things. Something else Dr. Hannah pointed out, and I did not know until he pointed it out to me, and that is that there was a total eclipse a few years before Jonah arrived in the city of Nineveh. Isn't that amazing? God had them set up. Their worldview was kind of open to this. It's like, what are the gods trying to say? They're not sure. So God in the natural realm has them set up, and all they need is a mouthpiece. For someone from the one true God to step into that pagan culture, inundated in paganistic worldview and the way they see life, God had them set up perfectly. And I think it's slide 13, verse 1 of chapter uh, 1 of Jonah. Okay. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of uh, Amittai, or uh, Amittai, all right. Go, arise, two, is two imperative words in Hebrew. The NIV translators smooth it out. It's arise, go. It's two imperatives. Go to the great city of Nineveh, or Nineveh, and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. I've got them ready, Jonah. There's been plagues. There's been an eclipse. They're seeing the shallowness of life and the uncertainty of their future. I've got them ready. Just go. And the way that's worded with those imperatives right there, rise and go, two imperatives, that means that, that post haste, get after it. The time is right. The wind of opportunity is there. I want to just share something with you this morning. That there's going to be times that God's going to raise you, going to bring a word of the Lord to you, and He's going to ask you to go and do something. It's not going to make sense to you. Go, you want me to go there and say this? God's got them ready. You have no clue about what God's been doing in the background. He's got them ready for your word, and that's why I say. With that, with that insight in mind, as I kind of embark on this series of Jonah, it's like, God, I want, I, I want to live for you, and I want to serve you, and uh, I want to honor you, and I want to listen to your voice, and I don't want to live my life in such a way I disappoint you in these golden opportunities that you've set up for me to have a ministry, to be a ministry to someone in my life. And so it's important for us to listen and be attuned to what God wants us to hear and what he wants us to do. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can live our lives not attuned to that, and we just kind of feel like we've let the Lord down in some of those situations. I'm reminded of the young executive 
he was a young executive for a big corporation. And he was in charge of a $10 million project, $10 million project. And he, the project failed, and, and the company lost all the money, $10 million. And the, the board convened, and, of course, they called him in, and the chairman said, hey, have a seat. Um, you probably know why you're here. And the guy's head just kind of drops. And he says, yeah, I, I think I probably have a good idea why I'm here. And uh, you're probably going to let me go and fire me. And there was just a pause, and the chairman of the board said, no, no, no. He said, we're not going to let you go. We're not going to fire you. We just spent $10 million educating you. We're not going to let you go. Because that's going to be used in your life to make you the executive and the leader of the company you, you need to be. And, that, and the reason why that story touches me so much is that that's what I hear coming through the pages of Jonah. See, Jonah writes later in life. He's not writing the book of Jonah while he's inside the, the great fish's belly. Okay, he doesn't write it in real time. He writes it, he reflects on what has happened in his life. And so he's older now this Jonah. He's older when he writes the book, and he's reflecting on what has happened in his life. And so he writes this book late in his life, and so this account offers us a a mature reflection on the triumph of God's grace despite his attitudes and behaviors. I mean, he's that young executive who drops his head later in life, and he realizes Man, I totally blew this, this assignment from you. Yeah, I did what I was supposed to do, but even after it succeeded, I pouted because of my attitudinal problems with you loving my enemy. And so, yeah, I did your will, and I set my heels, and I tried everything I could to get out of it, and I hated that I was successful, that I actually preached the message, and they hit their knees. And so, yeah, I did what I was supposed to do, but I did it with such an ugly attitude, and my behavior was horrible. And, and so Jonah, re- writing later in life, he's, he's offering these mature reflections on the life that he's lived. And I just want to say that some people teach us by their example. Other people, like Jonah, teaches us by an open, authentic confession spread over four chapters. And he's showing us that that that. Perhaps our greatest ministry is to be open, authentic, and even confessional about the lives that we've lived, about the times we've disappointed the Lord. And there's a ministry in that. There's a little Jonah in all of us, and there's a whole lot of Jonah in most of us. And that is why we need God's grace. And frankly, I'm glad. I'm grateful that God did not give us a book of Jonah's successes and one verse on his failures. No, we have 47 verses of Jonah's failure and one verse of success. Why do I like that so much? Well, number one, I'm a pastor, kind of a prophet in a way. And so it's nice to see this guy and his failures in life because I've got my fair share. Okay, and so there's a part of me that kind of likes it because of that reason. But there's another reason that is that all of us have room at the table at Jonah's story. We all fit in here. We know about failure 
and we know about disappointments, and we know about feeling like that we've let the Lord down at times in our life. And so it, it creates an inner struggle. When we think about this, Jonah's inner struggle, his inner life, you're going to see it in this book. You, you, you're not exempt, even if you're a prophet, you're not exempt from, from beliefs and hurts and emotions and longings and dreams and disappointments. Even if you're a prophet of God standing before the presence of the Lord, you're not exempt from, from these kinds of very real, down-to-earth, real-life, interior uh, feelings and, and uh, pressures, the things that we rejoice in, the things that we're disappointed in, that kind of an experience. And so I think what an older Jonah is trying to do through the book of Jonah, he is trying to convey to us that how we can move ourselves toward a God-honoring, God-centered life and we can avoid some of the heart-unraveling decisions that he himself made. And that oftentimes we make in our life. That's, I think, is really what is behind this motive and, and this hope and this longing for Jonah and his story to be a ministry to the people of God. And that's probably why he took the time to write it down. And God guided him, led him, led him in this. And it's a part of our, of our minor prophets. Not, not minor because of what it uh, what it has to say, minor because it's very short, minor contribution in the whole uh, catalog of prophecies that we have in the Old Testament. Now, you know this story. You know how this goes. Um, slide number four will kind of divide out some of the content of the book. And so you can kind of see that and work through it. And these are version notes as well. So you can access PowerPoint shows and things that I'm going to share in this series but you know the outline of Jonah's story, and it's a simple outline. Because God called this man out of a settled ministry in Israel to preach to Nineveh. And we're going to learn that Nineveh was a notoriously wicked city. Uh, and Jonah didn't like the idea. And so he gets in a ship, and he sails in the opposite direction. And God intercepted the ship by sending a storm. And when the crew realized that the storm had come because of Jonah... They threw him overboard, and God rescued Jonah by providing a great fish. Even the fish does the will of God, okay? That swallows him, and then the, the, the fish swims to shore, or close to shore, and he projectile vomits Jonah onto the beach. And that's kind of interesting, especially when some scholars think where he projectile vomited Jonah, um, that particular area. He didn't make it all the way to Tarshish. He was on his way, 2,500 miles away, but we, he didn't make it all the way. And where he was projectile vomited on the beach uh, was an area where, where they think was the fish god. The fish god was worshipped. Imagine that. A fish god. A fish comes up and vomits out a prophet. You're like, uh-oh, we might ought to pay attention to what this guy has to say. Right? God's got him ready. He's got him ready. Okay, he projectile vomits Jonah onto the beach where they worship the fish gods. And at this point, Jonah decided he had better do what God said. And so he went to Nineveh and he preached the message God had given. And when the people heard Jonah, they believed God and repented of their sin. And they were saved and judgment was averted and Jonah hated every minute of it. 
And when I get to when I say that, and having studied this with a, a degree of intensity this week, and I know where where we really need to go on this, what I want to say is I want to have less Jonah and more Jesus in my life. And there's a reason I say it. And I want you to see that. So if we go to slide number two, slide number two, you basically the narrative of Jonah, his story can be told. And he's running. We see Jonah sinking. We see Jonah rising. We see Jonah preaching. And we see Jonah pouting. And that's kind of the flow of the narrative here through the four chapters of Jonah. But then what I want to do, and I was actually going to just share this at the end of the message because I think it makes for a great conclusion, but I want you to see it here on the front end because that's what I'm saying. I think we need less of Jonah and more of Jesus in 2024. Uh, Slide number 23, if you would. If we hasten the New Testament and we move forward, okay, several several centuries we move forward and we read that in Matthew chapter 12 everybody wants a spectacular magic trick out of Jesus they want Jesus to do the miracle and they want Jesus to prove that he's an authoritative leader and he's a sage that he ought to be listened to but Jesus isn't just one more teacher that's come to teach you how to save yourself Jesus is one who has come and he's come just not as another teacher, but he's come as a savior of the world. And he says in verse 39, he answered a wicked and adulterous generation, asked for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with the generation, this generation, and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Less Jonah, more Jesus. And Jesus says that I'm like the prophet Jonah. He says, you know, there's death and resurrection, and, and my death and resurrection is going to be a fulfillment of the sign of, that was given through Jonah. And we know the story. Uh, Jonah was cast out into the sea. The sea became calm. He was swallowed by the fish, taken down the depths of the ocean. Three days later, he was brought out to the land of the living. Jesus says that my life is like that. He was cast out into the ocean of God's wrath at the cross. And the great tempest of God against our sin became calm. It was raging, and it becomes calm in Jesus and what he's done. And he was in the heart of the earth for three days like Jonah, and he's resurrected. And then the difference, of course, is that Jonah went through all of that involuntarily because of his disobedience, and Jesus went through all of it because of our disobedience. And Jesus went through it all because of our disobedience. And Jesus did everything right that Jonah did everything wrong. And so Jonah ran from his enemies. Jesus ran toward them. Jonah was on a mission with revenge because he hated the Ninevites. Jesus came on the mission of rescue because he loved them. Jonah was all about his own self-protection. Jesus poured himself out in self-sacrifice. Jesus says, less Jonah more Jesus. 
And that gives me hope for all the times that I've let the Lord down. And I've decided to go my way instead of his. I run to Jesus. And that's all we can do. You know, when you study this book, you're going to see a prophet in the palm of God's sovereign hand. And he's going to go down to Joppa and he's going to get a, a, a boat ride. And it's gonna, the fish is going to come in and, and it's going to swallow him up. And he's going to go back and there's going to be a plant and there's going to be a worm. And there's going to be a lot of mileage traveled in there. But th- you get the feeling that, that you know, we, we have this idea of, of God being the, the, the gentleman um, theory of God. That when you tell God no on something, he says, oh, okay, I'm sorry. And walks off. And let you do what you think you're going to do. We have this gentleman theory of God. That we say no, and we disobey, and God says, okay, I'm done with you. I'm not working with you anymore. Your will's bigger and greater than mine. And we have that idea. What I want you to see, church, this morning is that you're in the palm of his sovereign hand. And yeah, there's going to be a fair to pay, right? And we'll see that in our text today. There will be a fair to pay. Uh, Spurgeon calls it traveling expenses. <laughs> We're going to have some traveling expenses when we choose to go another way but besides the way God is asking us to go. They're traveling expenses. And we pay them. And you know what, church? Some of us here this morning are still paying for that Tarshish trip that we decided to take maybe many, many years ago. You're like, Pastor, what do I do? How do I fix this? One Tarshish trip after another, after another, after another. And it's just kind of accumulated. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to eliminate the pain. I don't know how to deal with the crisis it's created. Number one priority. Number one goal in all of this. It's not how do I get out of the pain or how do I get happy again. It is how do I glorify God given the story I'm in. How can I best glorify God in light of all these Tarshish journeys that I've made and they've accumulated and now I see the outflow of those things. And I just want to encourage you this morning, run to Jesus. He's at work. He'll work in your life to make you more like him. And even in the moments of rebellion and disobedience, you can look back and see that sovereign hand of God in all of it, all the decisions you made, the jobs you took, the person you married, the kids you had, okay, the, the vision you thought, the thing you thought you wanted to do, now, all these things, you're running around the palm of his sovereign hand, okay? And Jonah wants to show you that. An older, more mature Jonah is reflecting on how God has been at work in his life Jesus picks up on it and says, hey, less Jonah, more Jesus. And that's what I want 2024. Listen, you're going to see this. If we go back, slide number 13, let's just work through maybe the first three verses of Jonah chapter 1 this morning. Uh, The word of the Lord came to the son of Amittai or Amittai. And whenever we read the word of the Lord came, we have to understand that 
It's a, it's a formulaic phrase they, that it marked a true prophet of God, okay? It's like seven times in this book alone that we see, and the word of the Lord came. It's like 390 times in the Old Testament. And so when, we, when the word of the Lord comes to a prophet, he's coming to him maybe through a vision, maybe a dream, maybe someone speaking to him, maybe there's a circumstance, but maybe all of the above or some combination of that. Combination of that. We don't really understand fully what this involved but the word of the Lord came to him in clear unmistakable terms and it means that Jonah God is on the move and get ready saddle up because he's got a job for you to do verse 2 and it says to arise and go and like I said get up and go and go right away because you have to be my messenger to the great city of Nineveh God says And preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And I want you to see two assumptions right here in the text. And there's two assumptions that God makes. And I I think it's important that we note this. There's a huge assumption in that Yahweh, hear me now, Yahweh is the covenant God of Israel. He is their God. He is their identity. And and, and he has worked with them through sacrifices and, and through tabernacle worship and through the conveying of prophets and the word of God and and this is this is Israel's God the Yahweh God is a covenant God of Israel here's the deal there are like 50 or more deities represented in Assyria and not one of them is Yahweh but yet God assumes that this pagan nation is subject to his judgment as well you see that assumption Yeah, I am Israel's God, but I'm bigger than Israel. I'm no little league deity. I am sovereign over all nations of the world. And just because I'm interacting with this nation called Israel, sending prophets and have Jonah's and others in the nation doing my bidding, I am also the God of the nations. And their stuff comes up before me. And so I'm not just a God for a single nation. I am the God of of all nations, and their life, their behavior, their, their uh, um, way that they have chosen to, to head and, and the direction they have gone as a, as a nation, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment, has come up before me, and Assyria and all the nations of the world are subject to this, this creation God of Israel. Big assumption number one. There's a second assumption also in the simplicity of the way verse 2 reads. And that is that Yahweh assumes not only that all nations are accountable to him. But he assumes secondly that his prophets, his servants will do his bidding when he asks them to do something. He's sovereign over the nations. He's also sovereign over individual lives. And so these two huge assumptions are freighted with meaning here in verse 2. We've got to understand that. That's a big God at work in our world. And he's not so big that he's not individually concerned about his prophets, some of which will set their heels and have attitudes about obeying him. You know, note the phrase on the screen again, for their wickedness has come up before me one paraphrase words that phrase they smell to the highest heavens the stench has reached heaven is kind of a literal translation of that phrase so Jonah 
I'm smelling something that's not good. Get on your prophet's gear and prepare to go 550 miles away because I have a five-word sermon, Hebrew word sermon, I want you to give to a people I've prepared because I love them and I care for them. And yes, they're smelly, but I love them and I want to send a prophet to proclaim my grace to them. Somebody said that Jonah is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. You know, uh, Jonah's ministry takes place, like I said, in the, and I have to do the historical work on this, guys, because the Bible can mean one thing, one interpretation, many applications, okay? One interpretation, that's my job. I give myself to that. I want to make sure we understand the text Okay, but many, many applications. God uses his word to apply to our lives in many different ways. But, but, but what, is, what is being conveyed here? Can we be precise with this? And so when it talks about their wickedness, like a stench, it rises up before me. And we look at uh, Jonah and his, his era of prof, his uh, prophetic vocation was carried out under Jeroboam II, 793 to 753 B.C., slide number 5. If you would, you kind of help see, it helps you if you kind of see it geographically. You have Israel down and to the left. You have Assyria up and to the right. That's about a 550-mile hike that God was asking Jonah to make. 550 miles, 15 to 20 miles a day. You're looking at 20, 30 days to get to the city of Nineveh or Nineveh in Assyria. And these were terroristic people. They were horrible people. Nobody liked the Assyrians. If you weren't Assyrian, you didn't like the Assyrians. They were the dominant superpower in the ancient Near East at the time. And, and you can still see the, uh, slide number six. You can see the ruins of Nineveh across the Tigris River from the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq, 250 miles north of Baghdad. And so this is a real place. This is a real story. It's not just Jonah and the, and the whale, all right, and fictional, something we just read and we pretend it happened and it never, it never really happened. No, no, it's history. And Jesus treats Moses as a historic, or Jonah as a, as a historical person. It's history we're dealing with here. And the Assyrians were known for their brutality and their, the art of torture. And, it, and this morning, it's well documented. Like every resource, I bet 200 resources plus will convey or will verify what I'm sharing with you this morning that people lived in constant fear and dread of the Assyrian brutality and violence. If I were to give you the PG version, they would torture you, kill you, put your corpse on display, and later paint pictures to document the atrocities. If I were to give you, if I were to give you the R-rated version, and I'm not because I'm not going to ruin your Christmas Eve, right? But it's documented in my notes. Suffice it to say, Assyrian history is some of the most graphic pictures of cruelty we've got body parts skin tongues it's so so dark and what's coming out of gaza right now very similar some of the atrocities that's recently happened the terrorist organization what they're doing to the people there that what they've done the people in southern israel uh, the the witnesses are coming out women men who hid with their cell phones in places while hamas was coming in and shooting people up raping people burning people, just atrocious things, uh, not unlike the Assyrians. One gal said that she was hidden and she pulled body over her 
and of someone and yet somehow she knew she should watch because it could be used for evidence and eyewitness material later as they try to uh, arrange charges and take legal proceeding against this incredible, incredible, brutal onslaught. And she said, that day I became like an animal. I was emotionally detached. It was just the adrenaline of survival. I looked at all of this as if I was photographing them with my eyes, not forgetting any detail. I told myself I didn't want to see these, the, the rapes, the dismemberment, the burning alive. I didn't want to see these things. But she said, I had to watch because I know that maybe at some point I should remember everything because I, I might be needed. And she says, I'm waking up at night. My heart is pounding. I'm covered with sweat. And there's this painful rash that keeps spreading across my torso. And I can barely sleep. This was the Hamas-like people that Jonah was asked to go and preach to. And if his preaching was a failure, then he might become a martyr, although I don't think that was his greatest fear at all. I'll tell you why in just a moment. But he potentially could be that. Imagine a, an Orthodox Jew going down to the streets in the center of Gaza Square and preaching a message of repentance to the Hamas. Imagine the, their similarities in what Jonah was being asked to do compared to that illustration. Right? And so Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, a city with thousands of people in it. And he doesn't want to go because he knows that God is merciful and that he knows that he might give his enemies a second chance. And he doesn't want God to do that. Slide number 13, if you would. Verse uh, verse 3. And this will be our last verse. And so we'll unpack it and we'll wrap it up here this morning. But uh, let me just read the whole verse through and you track with me. So... We see here that the word of the Lord came, go, arise and go, preach against it. Its wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. And for some reason in my study this week, I kept saying in my mind, Tarshish, all right? Tarshish. This is crazy because it shows up three times here in our passage, all right? He wanted to head for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. The Hebrew actually has Tarshish again, so there's a second Tarshish. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. God is saying Nineveh. Jonah's saying Tarshish. Jonah, no, Nineveh. Tarshish. Jonah, no, no. You got to go east, my brother. You're going to east 550 miles. Jonah says, no way. I'm going 2,500 miles to the west to the furthest known city that was he knew at the time and that was Tarshish which is modern day Spain I'm not going to Tarshish I'm going or I'm not going to Nineveh I'm going to Tarshish referenced three times in one single verse the text says he went down to Joppa and it's interesting that it says he went down because we see this idea of going down several times. He goes down from the hill country of Gath-Hefer, which is where Jonah was from. That'll come out later. He walks down to the Mediterranean coast. He goes down into uh, the boat, right? He goes down to Joppa, 
verse 3, he goes down into the hold of the ship. Verse 5, he goes down into the sea. Verse 15, he goes down into the belly of the great fish, okay, in verse 17. You see the trajectory? God says, arise, get up, Jonah, go east. I've got him ready for the message. Jonah says, no, I'm not doing it. He goes down and down and down, and he goes west. He's not only going the wrong direction, he can't get up and down right. You ever done that? I want you to look at this phrase. After paying the fare, he went aboard. Slide number nine. It gives you just a visual of what I've just shared with you. After paying the fare, you can be sure that when we decide to disobey God, there's always a boat going to Tarshish. There will always be a ship in the harbor ready to take you in the wrong direction. And whenever we run in disobedience to God, Satan will be happy to arrange the transportation. And if you want to disobey God, there will always be somebody there to help you do that. But be very careful because you will pay the fare. He may provide you the ride. You probably aren't going to get to the destination and you will still pay the fare. It's interesting. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on this passage, like I said, he called it traveling expenses when we run from God on some Tarshish ship. You know what Charles, Charles Spurgeon says? Traveling expenses on our Tarshish journeys, he says it's going to cost you the blessing of the Lord. And we're going to see that in just a second, how Jonah tried to flee the presence of the Lord. It's going to cost you that. It will cost you more time. And the more time you give to your Tarshish trips, the less time you're going to have to say I love you to your wife, to spend time with your kids because you've chosen Tarshish. And that's, that's taking you away from everybody that you've loved. It's going to create more work and labor, so it will cost you more energy and fatigue. Disobedience expends so much time and energy, and boy, they really rode those oars. And so it, it, it not only costs you something, it'll cost people around you something as well. Going miles out of your way toward a destination that you'll probably never reach. Spurgeon says it's going to cost you more money. Jonah paid the fare. He might have even chartered the entire trip because it was not a normal thing to be able to catch a, 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 a direct uh, cruise from Joppa, a little Jewish port, to Tarshish, uh, 2,500 miles away. It's kind of like trying to get a round trip from Fort Wayne to Tel Aviv. You're not going to find it, all right? A, a nonstop, no, no uh, layover trip, okay? You're not going to be able to get that flight from Fort Wayne to Tel Aviv. You're going to hit a, a Chicago, New York City, or other place. Well, Jonah finds this boat that's going from Joppa to Tarshish. That's like going from Fort Wayne to Tel Aviv. It didn't happen. They didn't set it up that way. So he, he may have laid out so much for this. He may have chartered the entire boat, paid for the crew, everybody, anything. i got to get away from this Yahweh God who's asking me to do something I don't want to do. And boy, he paid out the nose for it. 
It will cost you your health. Spurgeon says it's harder on the body. It will cost you your peace of mind. You have inner turmoil. Makes your body weaker and more susceptible. Finally, Spurgeon says, and this is the end game, it could cost, potentially cost you your life. Not everybody has a great fish that bails you out of your storm. And if you think about all of these reflections as we stand on the edge of 2024, you think about all those, the traveling expenses to our Tarshish trips. And when you think about those and all the things that we are subject to having to pay and the things that we're going to lose in light of these Tarshish trips, it's really all the things that people want to talk about this time of year. Well, I want to manage my time better. That's my New Year's resolution. Or I want to get more sleep and deeper rest because I need that. Or, or I, want to, I want to reduce expenses and do better with money. Or, or I want to drop my unhealthy habits and have a healthier life. Or I want to challenge my negative thoughts. Or I want to, I want to increase my life expectancy. And here's some of my resolutions to get that done. All the traveling expenses that Spurgeon talks about are rolled right into New Year's resolutions. And what Jonah, the seasoned man of God who's reflecting now in, older, in his older years. He's saying, I got one thing that's going to fix all the other resolutions. The pathway to victory is surrender. Come to him. God has asked you to go to Nineveh. And I don't know what Nineveh looks like in your life, what it feels like in your life for some people Nineveh is their marriage you don't have a biblical reason for getting out but you have a logical reasons for getting out and you just want to leave everybody behind I'll pay what I got to pay I just I, I want to be out of my country I want to be away from my family I'm just so sick of this I just want to turn and go and 2500 miles later just turn around and look and make sure I'm still alone because I'm tired of this. And maybe God says, hey, you know what? Marriage is your Nineveh. There's a word you have to bear in that family, in that marriage. Don't you run. Don't you do that. The greatest lessons God wants to teach you are the times when you want to run so bad. Just get out of Ligonier, get out of Goshen, get out of Kendallville. I'll go states away. Don't do it. There's traveling expenses associated with those kinds of Tarshish trips. You know, Nineveh might be your singlehood. I don't want to go there, God. I've been in that status for a long time. Maybe your Nineveh is a job situation. Maybe, well, really I could go on. It's a myriad of scenarios the Ninevehs that God is, has in your life and you don't like what God says and when the word of the Lord comes to you about that subject, actually you don't even want to hear it and you've already made up your mind, I'm not going to go there. And, and I've got a little, I, I pull up the slide with a little sign that says, you know, uh, it's hard to hear God's voice when you've already decided what you want him to say. I don't know who posted that. But I'm like, I'm putting that in my slideshow for tomorrow. 
because I kind of done that. I'm not open to Nineveh. God's got something ready in my life, in my family or some other ministry area. He's got them ready. I mean, it may not be two plagues and clip, but God's got them ready. He's ready for my I love you or I'm sorry or, or, or uh, you can do this. Or maybe he's ready to hear, to hug, or to be held and do that through you. And we're going to Tarshish. Spurgeon says there's traveling expenses. You know, when, when people run from, from God, they don't necessarily tell themselves that this is what they're doing. This is my pastoral observation. Sometimes it's blatant. I hate God, and I hate how he runs the world, and I hate Ninevites, and I hate what they're doing. And you know what? I, don't, I just soon see them all judged, right? And that's how we think. And, and, and so we go blatantly, boldly, audaciously we we stomp stomp off and just leave it all to God and we just going to refuse to be a part of this but most of the time pastorally that's not what I see in here most of the time the language of spiritual of the spiritual fugitive sounds more like this you know it's amazing how things worked out you know I was just on my walk I went down to the beach at Joppa I just wanted to you know find some seashells and stuff and just kind of clear my head and I went down and I saw this boat and there was a crew and it happened to be going west right and so I had the money I just happened to have the money with me <laughs> to charter this boat I just happened to you know it's all circumstantial everything just lined up and it was all headed the right direction More often than not, that's the language of the fugitive. I turned around and there it was. I was so miserable. I was in such tension. I know God doesn't want me to be unhappy. And I wasn't, and it's so remarkable how that this has worked out now. I don't feel like God would mind if I did this. I'm finding happiness here. The language of the fugitive. You're on the run. You're on your way to Tarshish. And Spurgeon stands back here behind me and he says, you tell them, Nelson, tell them, traveling expenses for those kinds of journeys. More often than not, I feel good about it. It might be a procedure I've, I've had done or I want, I'm thinking about doing. It might be a vote I want to cast or it might be an affair I want to do. It might be an engagement. It might be an investment. It might be an act of disrespect or betrayal, but I have a peace. I have a peace. The more often than not, and I speak pastorally, that's the language of the fugitive. Are you running this morning? The Lord has spoken very clearly, clearly to you about maybe some issue in your life through the Bible, through the context and circumstances of your life, and you've decided, I'm just going to run away from the Lord. Maybe there's a relationship you know is not pleasing to God, and you're going to do it anyway. Maybe there's a sacrifice God's put on your heart to make, and you're not going to make it. And maybe there's a conviction He's convicted you about an area of your lifestyle. 
what you've let go in 2023. You just let that go, and that baby's gaining steam. And God says, rise up. Go to Nineveh. I've got a job for you to do. I've got a different direction for you to go in 2024. Are there any Ninevehs in your life? Are there any Tarshishes in your life? You've dodged and ducked and squirmed and squeaked your way through one Tarshish trip after another, and you're tired. You're through. You're ready for God. I have no condemnation or judgment for you this morning. You're looking at one that's, I've let the Lord down so many times in my life. So many times. But still he works. Sovereign hand. Look at Joey. He's going here and he's going there and he's, I still got him. I still got him. I got worms and fish and wind. I got sailors and I got boats. I'm doing my work. No judgment or condemnation from me this morning. I just want you to see there's a Jesus. He's working. There's a God and he's sovereignly working. And all nations are accountable to him. And he expects his servants to do his bidding. And that's a privilege, not an obligation. And you're going to like where that leads you in the days ahead. Have you ever felt like you've let the Lord down? Well, this morning, there's nothing like pleasing him. And not letting him down, but lifting him up. And when you say yes to him, God, I'll go. I'll do it. I know my Nineveh. Pastor Joey hit it. I got it. I'm ready to go. That lifts him up. And there's new beginnings, and there's new possibilities, and there's a new approach to 2024. So much better than just shallow New Year's resolutions. That's a whole life direction change. When we talk about letting letting the Lord down, and I'll close with this story. Slide number 25, if you would, for me. Thank you for clicking through with me this morning. Brenda Stoker tells about how she just let the Lord down, and she let her mom down, she let her family down. Uh, She just talks about how unintended journeys take you where you don't want to go to face unintended consequences. And uh, she just very openly, kind of like Jonah in the book of Jonah, she tells her story with openness and transparency, you know, years after the fact, but she's finally got enough healing where she can tell this story. And she said that uh, she had a total emotional collapse that left her unable to care for her mom. And there was shame and condemnation that tormented her every moment because Her mom got the worst kind of lung cancer and had only six months to live. The lady on the right, her mother, lung cancer, there was a name for it, I didn't put it in my notes, but uh, six months to live, it was a brutal cancer, fast moving. And Brenda here on the right, and Fred, her husband there on the left, uh, they've written different books, but uh, she's a registered nurse And they had to move her mother into her home so that Brenda and Fred could care for her mom. And she said that went along, you know, for a few weeks. And then things started happening. She just kind of starts disintegrating. She's kind of like Jonah. She starts unraveling from the inside. This is 
This is uh, Brenda now, unraveling from the inside. She said, death was a daily topic in my home. Every room reminded me of my mother's coming death. Sitting on the night table were hospice booklets about symbolic boats sailing over the horizon. And I saw those things every moment, seemingly, of every day. And if I went downstairs, I'd see stacks of paperwork created by record transfers and medical payments. And if I went to the family room, I'd see my mom's table piled high with bottles of pills. And, and if I opened the refrigerator, I would see these pink bottles of Boost staring back at me, multiple layers of them, this nutritional supplement. If I went to the dining room, there were oxygen, oxygen tanks stashed in the corner. And if I ju jumped in my car for a quick escape, I, I looked up when I backed up and I saw the, the handicapped parking permit hung from the rearview mirror that belonged to my mom. She said, my mom was the dearest, closest friend in the world to me. But in the last few months of, my, of her life, I lost it. Her dad had died of cancer. Brenda's dad had died of cancer, and it triggered something, and she couldn't escape it. Brenda ends up going to the hospital. She had dramatic weight loss. They had to move her mother out of her home in the last few months of her life. And in her hour of greatest need, Brenda collapsed emotionally, spiritually barren, and drained. And she said, reflecting on it later, she identified the core behind the collapse. And this is what she said. I was furious, utterly offended by God, nearly rabid with rage. That all of this was happening. Does that sound like Jonah to you? Furious, offended by God, rabid with rage. And once the goodness of God's plan is suspect, the very foundation of life is shaken. Tarshish, here I come. There's nowhere else to go. We can't face spiritually intense moments like this in an unraveled state. And I think what Jonah is trying to do, he's trying to, he's trying to emphasize the importance of coming to the Lord and being in the presence of the Lord and not fleeing from the Lord. And that's what I want to leave you with today. On slide number, or verse number three, if you would, verse number three, look at the phrase where he says he fleed, he's trying to flee from the Lord, to flee from the Lord's presence. It's the word panim. It, it appears a couple of times in this verse. What's that mean? Panim is the face of God. Jonah knew he couldn't get away from the presence of God. He knew his Psalms. He knew Psalm 139. He knew he couldn't escape the presence of God, the overallness of God. Everywhere he went, he knew God saw him and could hear him and see him. But what he's saying here, he says he's trying to flee from the face of the Lord, from the panim. The face of God. He wants to get away. It's a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew idiom for saying Jonah is in full rebellion against the Lord. I resign. If I have to do this, God, I resign. I turn away from your face. I'm going to reject everything associated with your presence. The temple choirs and the sacrifices and the offerings and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the law and the priests and even God himself. I'm, I'm just turning my back on all of it. 
Why did he do that? Well, Jonah's like, God's like, you know what? I got a message for you to proclaim. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah's like, okay, you see need of Nineveh's evil, great, finally, you see it. God says, there's going to be judgment coming, and Jonah's like, here, here, I've been waiting for this, this brutal people. And then God says, Jonah, I want you to go warn them. And he's like, over my dead body. Why did he do that? Oh, I don't think, I don't think he was afraid of martyrdom. I don't think he was afraid of public speaking. I don't think he was afraid of traveling to a new culture. Here's what he was afraid of. Slide number 20, I'll close with this. Slide number 20, verse, chapter 4, verse 2, we see this later. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. The reason he didn't go to Tarshish or Nineveh was because God was too nice. And the reason God looks at all of us with the same compassion today is because of Jesus and what he's done for all of us. And Jesus says, his story, Jonah's story, is my story. And that's why I say to you this morning, less Jonah, more Jesus. Less Jonah, more Jesus. Where are you at this morning? interior life unraveling you want to be prepared for 2024 i invite you on this journey called the prodigal prophet the relentless pursuit of god would you pray with me father thank you so much for this day and thank you for a great group and we're so thankful for your word to us and i just pray and ask this morning that we would be open and ready to rise up and go when you say rise up and go whatever none of us we've got I pray, God, that we would be sobered by the expenses, the travel expenses of Tarshish, and then that we would be motivated to flee into your arms and your love and your grace. And this morning, you work in our lives and our hearts and such that rather than resisting or refusing, outright refusing, trying to escape your presence, trying to flee the face of God, that will come to you in and through Jesus. And you'll do something in us, through us, and by us. And I just ask and pray here this morning that whatever challenges we have for this coming year, Lord, that you would be God over all. And when we don't understand and we can't explain, God, you work and you, you guide us and you be sovereign over all of the details of our life. And we ask and pray here this morning that um, you would help each of us 
to find you drawing near, near to our, heart, our hearts this morning, as we know we need you. And Lord, we don't want to just let you down. We want to live our lives for you. And we want to be your servant and your vessel. And I ask and pray that you would even use us, maybe people we struggle to maybe see life from their point of view. People in our lives that maybe we have issues with, that somehow in all of that, your love could flow through us. And this could be the beginning. And your will would be done. And who you are could be magnified and lifted up. We pray all these things in your name this morning. Amen. If you'd be so kind, next week we're having a guest speaker. It's going to be a great worldview weekend. That's awesome. But before then, Wednesday evening coming up this week, we're going to have The Chosen, the premiere edition of the first episode of The Chosen fourth season. And so in light of that, we do need to leave the chairs. I don't know what was announced this morning, but we need to leave the chairs where they are. So just leave them here because we got the movie on uh, Wednesday. And then after that, we'll get them stacked for Sunday's um, services. All right, will you stand with me? If you forget everything else, just remember this. Less Jonah, more Jesus. And your 2024 will be incredible. Blessings, you're dismissed.